Welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us for the Cultural Competency Training, um, sponsored by the Department of Mental Health and partnership with UCLA's Public Mental Health Partnership. Uh, my name is Larry Fernandez, and I'll be hosting the Cultural Competency Training. Um, the training today is part of a refresher course. So for some of you, some of the information may be something that you may have already um, uh, become aware of. It's just adding on to your current knowledge base, or for some, just a, again, a refresher of some sort to, um, to just uh, regenerate some information that you may have already uh, been very accustomed to using. Again, my name is Larry Fernandez. I have uh, uh, been now uh, part of the PMHP team for a bit, and my background is as an LCSW, and coming with a background of, uh, of um, an FSP experience for the last uh, 15 or 16 years. So the objective of our training today is really to define what culture and cult cultural competency is. Um, also the benefits of cultural competent uh, um, tr treatment throughout the uh, intensive services um, um, journey of treatment, um, specifically in the FSP arena. And thirdly, tools for supporting cultural competency care while clients, uh, again, take the journey through recovery in a mental health system. So cultural competency is loosely defined as the ability to, knowledge, uh, uh, to engage knowledgeably with people across cultures. And when we say um, knowledgeably, of course, as we, as we uh, loosely define the cultural competency, one of the things that I will invite you to do is look at it from the analogy experience of a forever flowing book, if you will. So cultural competency is really, uh, it's not a one-time um, learning experience. It's not a, a, a book that you read once and now you are fully culturally competent in one um, particular um, experience of ethnicity or, or even of a group, if you will. Cultural competency, competency is an ongoing experience, as mentioned earlier, an ongoing book, if you will, that will continue to add new experiences as we live life and go through experiences and meet new clients and just uh, are able to uh, engage um, in, in the, the learning of others. Um, and by doing this, we are really focusing on um, um, four areas specifically. We're talking about awareness um, and how we uh, gain awareness, the attitudes that we bring when we are learning these experiences of others that are different than us, and skills that we are able to develop and also share um, the skills that we possess to be able to con continue to um, be diverse and understand diversity. And then the development process and how we understand and allow for others to develop into their own comfort experience of, of a variety of, of differences, uh, competencies by way of learning as well. So in, in a more formal um, definition, we have cultural competence um, experience um, by way of definition in the DSM-5. And that definition is operationally um, viewed as um, culture being the value, orientation, knowledge, and practice that individuals um, in diverse groups um, use to understand their health experiences. So things like the value systems that one may carry on throughout life or are given by way of one's family experience, environment experience, and things of that nature, and also by way of knowledge, right? Well, what we gain by way of learning. 
Secondly, the aspects of a person's background and experience that may affect his or her perspective on health, wellness, illness, and health services, such as geographic origin, language, migration, religion, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. So as we look at cultural competency, we see that much of the background experience of, a, of, of an individual um, does fall into place when we are operationally looking at a, a definition for culture. Again, everything from the migration experience, a first-generation um, individual might have a different um, set of an understanding by way of mental illness or culture, um, again, um, by way of religion, um, how different uh, religion, uh, religious factions may view culture and the diversity that, that, that um, it's brought about. And next is the influence of family, friends, and other community members, um, the person's social network, um, the person's health and experience. So as one looks at um, culture by way of, uh, of um, mental health um, is, is also a big part of, of how we look at one's family, um, the environment or social network, the um, individuals that may influence not only definition, but also how to, um, how to um, view that experience of, of culture. Cultural treatment and elements to consider. Um, so again, um, reflecting back on the previous uh, slide, uh, that is extracted from the DSM-5, we start with letter A is values, orientation, and knowledge. So again, um, keeping, in, uh, keeping in perspective that um, culture in, in, the, in the realm of treatment can be uh, really um, zeroed in in three different areas here with values, orientation, and knowledge. Uh, the examples here are, for instance, a racial group faith, community, sexual orientation, social class, or even an occupational um, setting or an occupational group. Someone can, um, can uh, if we ask a client, you know, what do you consider um, your culture? Again, their culture might be grounded by definition in maybe for one person, um, their affiliation with a particular um, religious faction. For others, it might be their their um, their connection to their um, sexual orientation, and for others, culture might be defined as the occupational group that they subscribe to. One example of that is someone who is maybe in law enforcement or a military um, background, and where um, they consider the culture that they most subscribe to or identifies them as that of a military experience and therefore within those um within that um within that environment of the military there's a set of rules and, and values and understanding on how to see the world that may be different than a you and i and in letter b we have geographic location migration illness socioeconomic levels um, race and ethnicity so the example here is within a diverse community um, um, generations of migration and clients' affiliation of race. Again, um, as we take in this example, maybe client B, let's say, um, their affiliation to their culture or their root of their culture when asked is probably more derived by their community, their connection to their community, or even by way of their migration level, right? 
again, um, one person who might be, let's say, of, of Mexican origin, who is first generation, may see the world and experience their own life much different than someone who is maybe of the same uh, ethnic group, Mexican, but second generation or third generation, where maybe the value system is different, language may be uh, uh, a, a bit different, and even just the way to approach um, the the uh, um, the day-to-day experience by way of um, subtleties such as um, uh, food, um, affiliation of, of religion, and so on and so forth. And again, keeping with the same dynamic as we look at letter C and um, term it as maybe client C, we look at um, the influence of a family, friend, community, or social network. And in this case, um, this this particular um, individual may see um, or define their culture as uh, more affiliated with those um, who are around him or her. And this experience, for instance, um, those that assist them in making decisions, right? Who are the decision-making individuals in their family? Um, what is the community's expectation for this individual? And then also the social acceptance um, when making a particular decision. So um, in this letter C client per se, um, the individual sees their subscri- their affiliation to their culture by way of family. So again, um, here we have three different examples of what culture may mean to different people. Um, none of them are correct, all are, are incorrect, excuse me. Each person has their own view of what culture may mean for them, which as a practitioner makes our uh, job a, a bit um, more intriguing by way of needing to really identify what the person in front of us is defining for themselves as culture, right? Whether that be A, B, or C, a combination of all, or maybe even all of them. So as we gather um, unique clinical information, the question to um, you all is, when is it a good time to gather cultural information? And, you know, that can vary depending on your ability to have access to the client. But here are some core um, specific uh, opportunities that may come up that make a lot of um, supportive um, opportunities available when a client is um, more amenable to probably sharing information. So one is um, upon receiving a referral. Uh, My experience as an FSP director was often receiving the referral and it made it um, really a unique experience for me because I, I would typically read the assessment or the referral, I should say, document, and then be able to learn a lot about this particular client that was being referred. So that was my uh, opportunity to um, gather cultural information as well as other information, right? Uh, background information, whether that be treatment-oriented, legal, or even family-oriented. So again, as we start with um, the, the top point here is upon receiving a referral, it is a good time for us as practitioners to to enhance our knowledge of a client's cultural background, right? Uh, again, simply by reading the referral documents. The next point is upon outreach and engagement. Um, again, this is you know the process in which we are truly now meeting a client, building relationships, establishing an initial rapport process, and and this is a a, a really um, uh, initial time for us to 
um, ask questions that um, allow for us to paint a better picture of the client that we will be serving, hopefully long term. And so, um, again, asking the client, asking the referring party as well, who is this person um, that we will be serving and, and what makes them who they are culturally? And our third point is um, the opportunity to ask culturally relevant information or gather culturally relevant, inform relevant information during clinical assessments, right? Typically performed by a therapist. And at this point, we are asking uh, clients directly now who are sitting in front of us um, information about themselves how they define themselves, how they see themselves, um, what do they subscribe to by way of religion, if, if at all, um, also their geographic um, affiliations, th their cultural, ethnic um, um, affiliations, what language they um, prefer um, to identify as their primary language, and then also how they see themselves um, by way of potentially um, ethnic uh, background, and, and anything of that, uh, that sort. Also, in keeping with the clinical assessment, one of the areas that we want to kind of dive into to gather additional cultural information is by interviewing family members. Um, oftentimes, whether you're working with a child or an adult, they may be accompanied by um, a family member or even someone that we would um, categorize as a collateral, a connection to the family or connection to the client, um, better said. And so this is an opportunity for us to not only get cultural information from the client directly, but also from additional supportive systems that the family may have. Um, and our fourth point here is um, during a needs assessment. Again, a uh, needs assessment is a little bit different than, than a uh, clinical assessment. A needs assessment may be performed by a variety of folks on the team, whether that be a peer partner, a case manager, a rehab specialist, even a therapist, right? Um, in this case, we're really looking to um, to take inventory of a client's basic needs. So in doing so, uh, we might ask questions like, um, um, you know, preferences to, um, you know, residents, you know, where, where one lives, um, why they choose to live there, um, things like food, um, uh, you know, um, uh, how they subscribe to other things in the community by way of um, where they work, where they like to uh, work, um, school they may attend or have attended. And so again, um, during a needs assessment, it really does um, allow for us an opportunity to gather more cultural information that can just enhance our understanding of the client and also build the relationship on an ongoing um, level. And our last point here is um, gathering unique information during a warm handoff. And this is a two-way street because sometimes we are the um, initiator of the warm handoff and sometimes we are the recipient of the warm handoff. So if you are transferring your client or stepping down a client into a lower level of care from an FSP program, it is then your opportunity to share what you know about the client by way of culture and uniquenesses to the receiving um, party um, or provider, if you will. This allows for the um, new provider to have a, a, um, a definite, uh, definite benefit of understanding the client, maybe how to better pair to um, have the treatment be uh, fluid and, and very clear by way of continuity of care. And um, it allows for the uh, partnership 
uh, of two providers to just um, have a, a clear ebb and flow. So again, here are some, um, you know, five points that um, could really be honed in on by way of a team who uh, might see a client for the first time or might be exiting the client and gives us many different um, opportunities to both gather and also share information that we have compiled of a client that makes them culturally different, um, unique, and, and just wonderful as their own individual um, uh, client. So as we look at cultural competency and some points to remember, I'll start with the um, matching of ethnicity. Oftentimes, as providers, we want to start with the obvious, and that is matching a uh, client of particular ethnicity by maybe someone on our team that um, shares the same ethnic background. And although that's a, a good start, it's not enough oftentimes. What we have to keep in mind is that even though two, two individuals may have the same ethnic background, um, it doesn't mean that they are culturally the same. They can have different perspectives by way of everything from where they live, their age, their sexual orientation. So there could be a lot of uh, um, um, small, small nuances that will make two individuals of the same ethnicity be completely different. However, I do want to point out that oftentimes it can be a good starting point. Secondly is matching by language is important, but again, um, is just the effective starting process, right? If someone is particularly identified to be monolingual in one particular um, language, and we are fortunate enough to have a staff member on our team that speaks that language, of course, it would be a great idea for us to pair them so that at minimum, the process of, of um, rapport building, comfortability by way of sharing information is, 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 is easier for the client, right? However, again, this is just a starting point. We also want to make sure that the person who speaks the same language as someone else is also able to understand that this individual may only share that similarity with them is language. Everything else may be different, and we have to be very able to um, be open to that and, and understand that there may be several differences brought about by the client that speaks the same language. Next is providers should have skill-based training and not just focus on, on identity or personal experiences. So again, um, having someone live in a specific geographic location um, is helpful but it may not be enough. And here's the example to that. Let's say I live in a particular part of Los Angeles and I'm matched up to provide treatment to a client that lives in that same radius. Well, being that we share the same geographic radius of, of living uh, may be good for me by way of maybe knowing um, some of the areas that the client may have gone to school or maybe where they access um, some of their basic needs like shopping and, you know, how they spend sometimes um, their days in the community. However, it still doesn't take away from us uh, needing to develop more of a formal skill-based um, experience by way of training, right? For instance, the training we're doing today is it's considered 
more of a formal base train. So again, um, just having a similarity to a client, in this case, geographically, can be a starting point, but it's a, an area where we have to continue to add on to. And then lastly here is the approach cannot just be attitudinal understanding, but also tool-oriented. Very, very important for us to become a, um, um, uh, comfortable with utilizing research information that has already been proven to be effective by way of evidence-based practices or existing measures like surveys and questionnaires that allow for us to get a better understanding of the client's cultural views, understanding and how they define themselves. And uh, the more we become accustomed to um, utilizing uh, the approaches by way of evidence-based practices or even these existing measures, it really makes it easier for us to um, to build on uh, a, a formalized experience. And here we are now jumping into a case vignette. And our client here, Maria Perez, um, as I will share with you, has some, um, some um, uniquenesses that you will learn about shortly as um, Maria is prepared to visit her uh, PCP or also known as her primary care physician. So Maria is a 46-year-old woman, originally from the Dominican Republic, who reports to her primary care provider because she has been feeling fatigued and dizzy for several months. Um, exploring this further, Ms. Perez acknowledges that she has also had trouble sleeping and has been falling asleep uh, uh, and has been um, feeling less herself lately. Sorry. She has also lost some weight. So after a negative evaluation for an, uh, from other medical um, causes of her symptoms, her primary care physician or provider decides she is likely suffering from depression and tells her directly, Ms. Perez, um, what, you're, what, you, what you have is depression. So Ms. Perez reacts with surprise, with surprise and tells her PCP that she is not interested in any treatment for depression. Ms. Perez is scheduled for a follow-up appointment. She misses her next appointment. So as we, as we um, just kind of conceptualize this case of, of Maria, uh, of Ms. Perez, uh, I'm sure that we can probably uh, connect uh, this particular example with maybe another case that we've worked with or, or cases that we've seen maybe in our own, um, you know, life experiences of, of, of our professional journey. And so we wanna think about maybe what are some of the areas here that we can um, approach from a maybe different perspective if we were in this experience with Ms. Perez. So we'll start with some um, considerations before we go into um, some direct um, um, uh, areas of focus. So something to consider or considerations. Relationship, um, how is the relationship currently between the PCP or the primary care provider and Ms. Perez? Is the relationship uh, a, in a place where uh, uh, the, the, the experience of communication could be very clear? Um, does, uh, has this relationship existed for some time or is it, or is this possibly some of the, just someone who is meeting Ms. Perez for the first time, right? Something else to consider is communication style. What is Ms. Perez's 
preferred communication style? Does she prefer direct communication? Does she uh, prefer to have someone in in um, in the appointment with her by way of um, maybe a translator or maybe just someone to be supportive to her? Right. So, what is the preferred communication style? Also, some some um, something to consider when it comes to communication style is it better to be in writing? Some individuals may prefer that. Right. The next consideration area is empathy. What is as as a provider? What is um, our area of of empathy that we we should take into account here with with Miss um, Perez? We are going to be sharing some sensitive information, and what of this information may may require for us to have um, a level of empathy that's going to allow. Um, Ms. Perez to really feel supported by us. Next, it's environment. Um, where am I sharing this information when I give uh, Ms. Perez the update of her currently being depressed? Uh, am I in a hallway? Am I in a um, in a waiting room? Am I in a room where she is comfortable? Uh, is it a, a room in where Ms. Um, Perez may feel open to be able to um, ask questions? Right. The next area of consideration is support. Um, is it something that we may? Is it a uh, a an important point to maybe ask Miss Perez? Would you like someone else to be accompanying you while we share the update of our current findings? Um, you know, it, so giving the client the opportunity to choose what is comfortable for them by way of bringing somebody in, whether that be a family member, a collateral support system, and even maybe even another provider that they have a, um, really a good connection with by way of support. And allowing for a space of clarification. So if we are going to give, in this case, Maria or Ms. Perez information about something that may be completely new um, or may even bring about many questions, allowing for a space for clarification. So um, not only the ability to better define what depression might be, but also uh, an opportunity and time allotment enough to where we can sit down and really gather information um, from this present and also share information that will make her feel more comfortable about what we have just shared with her by way of news for her uh, of her being depressed. And and our last element here of consideration is how do we share this information in a format that is more focused on strengths versus um, a deficit experience, right? Um, as we look at um, depression and knowing that we also want to potentially uh, commend Ms. Perez for being here and being able to be vulnerable enough to share um, um, her time with the PCP and um and also continuing to be open to treatment and really encouraging the ongoing need for treatment, especially now that we have defined um, the experience that uh, Ms. Perez is going through as an, a, a depressive episode. So again, these are nuances or areas of, of consideration that um, may have come up for many of you, can come up for some of you in your own practice experiences, but um, these are really good considerations to keep in mind when we're working with um, our clients and also to bring into supervision and from a growing experience 
how do we continue to tack onto this list as this is not a, um, a, a, a closed list here. This is just some considerations to keep in mind. And you all as an individual provider or as a team can add on to this consideration list as it be fit for your team or your particular client. So specifically, some reasons why Ms. Perez may have declined treatment um, are the following three areas. Again, we can only speculate. Um, one is Ms. Perez may be influenced by power of negative stigma of mental illness, which is common across cultures, but specifically, but especially in developing countries where treatment is not readily available. So again, just being mindful of um, such things as um, the stigma of mental illness and how powerful that could be by way of Ms. Perez leaving and never returning the treatment. Secondly is language barrier. Language barrier could have also interfered even when a patient speaks English fairly well. Clinical discussions about emotionally charged issues such as mental health can, can impede clear communication. So again, taking us back to one of the considerations of space, of supportive um, individuals with the client and also our empathetic experience all can really help this experience of language. And last here is mistrust. Um, the direct way in which the PCP approach to diagnosis seems to have taken Ms. Perez by surprise and could have led uh, her to question whether or not the, P uh, the provider has her best interest in mind. So again, um, uh, the, the PCP sharing abruptly, very, very briefly, and not with much detail can uh, take Ms. Perez into a space of mistrust and which we want to assure that um, we, again, allot for time of clarification, as mentioned in our previous area of, of uh, consideration. So here is um, just a slide that takes us into a whole different space of, of culture by way of conscious and subconscious. And truly one of my favorite slides of, of all it takes us uh, really is taken from, from the, uh, the iceberg model of conscious and subconscious. So as we look at um, the, the conscious level, if you will, the white um, snowy area is the surface level of culture, which is oftentimes something that when we have a client in front of us, we will be able to see. They're, they're more tangible, they're observable, they are more obvious by way of, uh, of cultural um, identifiers. Those are things like food, flags, festivals, fashion, the way a person dresses, the holidays people celebrate, the music that people uh, enjoy, performances that people um, you know, subscribe to or, or prefer, things like dances and games, arts and literature and language. These are, again, the conscious level of culture that um, individuals, um, humans will be able to um, more in the forefront be able to, uh, to share openly. And then we have the deep culture and those are oftentimes more subtle, more restricted, more, um, more guarded at times, depending on, 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 on the client's experience. And also for some clients, it may be something that may, they themselves may not even recognize it's there. And we'll start with communication styles and rules. For instance, facial expressions, gestures, 
things like eye contact, conversational patterns that that the client may not even be aware that um, he or she does by way of engaging, such as tone of voice, whether that be a high tone of voice, a lower pitch tone of voice, right? So these are things that a client may not be aware of. Um, and we may not be aware of either by way of what kind of tone of voice we use when we communicate with the client and uh, what is favorable to the client. So very mindful, uh, being very mindful here of, of what the subconscious experience of culture may be for a client in communication styles and rules that they may subscribe to. The next is notions of things like courtesy and manners. Um, uh, a, a client's experience of leadership or authority, if you will. Um, so keeping in mind that, um, you know, things like a person's um, perception of someone else um, is very important um, and, and how we address and how we talk to a client and how they also may see things. The next is concept of, for instance, themselves, uh, past and future experiences, um, fairness or justice, um, roles related to age, uh, sex, sex, class, family, etc. These are deep um, uh, experiences of culture that a client may not even be aware that um, they um, have as a preference, but they've done it for so long, and it was, you know, something that they developed, you know, instantly within the environment they lived in, that they may not uh, fully be aware that there is a different style that that someone else may um, employ. And then last here is attitudes towards others, right? Um, for instance, the the value of of the different uh, categorization that uh, elderly may play in a certain um, culture, or or the adolescent individual, um, one's dependents, right? Children, um, the rules that are expected of one, whether that be cultural based, gender based, um, and then also things like work and, and not working or even authority. And again, us as practitioners may be seen in someone's life as an authority figure. So it's important that we be mindful of that. So again, a very good slide here that allows for us to look at culture in, in a totally uh, different way. If you, if, you, if you don't look at culture, maybe from a subconscious way, it's a, it's a very good slide here that can really easily be shared with one's uh, um, team and again for just the sake of relearning or a refresher it's a great uh, slide to enjoy and now as we look at cultural competency uh, competency we want to look at it um, from a framework that's again um, ongoing and, and system driven right um, uh, thinking about um, cultural competency from a place that it, it is more than just one person's responsibility um, we start with uh, uh, the practitioner, right? That is uh, yourself or myself working with a client from an individual basis, right? It is important for us to identify areas such as training, um, continuing to grow from an awareness experience, and also how to practice reflections of how we see the world um, and incorporate those into our own concept uh, and, and definition of culture. Next, is more from a pro programmatic and organizational experience and how a program or an organization has a responsibility to really create a cultural competency um, environment, right? And this is done oftentimes by way of the policies that an agency may have. 
the expectation that they may set for a particular client or even um, a group of, of practitioners to to provide services to a particular group, right? Um, also, um, how do we as an organization provide training to all staff on cultural competency, not just the practitioner that is the therapist or case manager, but everyone from the driver to, to um, the front desk support, QA person and and um, and and so be it, right? One example I can share here um, in my in my FSP, um, you know, directorship um, days was we had the privilege of having a um, two drivers um, employed in our FSP team, and our drivers were so crucial to our team because they spent in essence more time than the practitioners did with the clients when they would pick them up drop them off, take them to medication appointments, um, doctor appointments, so be it. And in this case, it's very important for us to uh, make the drivers as knowledgeable as possible as they were also spending much uh, of this time that we would consider treatment time with the client. So that's just one example. And, and again, from a program and organizational standpoint, very important that we really focus on diversifying the team we have, right? Uh, making sure that those that we have on our team are reflective of those that we serve by way of the geographic understanding, ethnic um, uh, resemblance, um, affiliation or similarities by way of language. And then just even from a, 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 an area of um, being very knowledgeable or even similar to by way of sexual orientation or preference. So again, how do we as a program or organization really strive for that team diversity that is reflective of the doors that we walk out of into the community where our program is um, is currently located? So that is very important. So again, so we, we've taken it from the individual, if you will, to the program. And now we have the system um, level of cultural competency, which is how, how do we also strive to assure that the systems that we engage with are culturally competent and aware of such a, 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 a uniqueness that will really help the client engage and be um, successful. And, and that includes systems such as, but not limited to, schools, courts, jails, other health providers, and then even policymakers, right? Um, so how, how uh, we as practitioners may be the voice at times for our clients by way of advocating to let's say in this example, a client that is going to court and we are accompanying the client to court and how we represent um, the court in a way of assuring that the court understand that there are some cultural uniquenesses that our client may have and may need to really be successful, whether that is to integrate into a treatment program or just to be able to um, uh, successfully go through whatever legal um, ramifications they may have to um, by way of whether that be probation or parole or whatever the case may be. So again, as we look at cultural competency, looking at it from not just my responsibility as a direct practitioner, but really a um, a, a a real a real um, um, kind of diverse cultural competency experience of sharing sharing the responsibility with all the um, entities that we we affiliate with. That takes us now to a culturally competent uh, care experience 
um, by way of who is responsible for these entities. Again, it's not just one practitioner. It can happen in different ways. It starts with leadership, right? Again, a leadership team is um, the 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 uh, the folks that really drive the the training, the the preparation of the team, the ongoing supervision, and really how does that leadership team really view cultural competency from you know a scale of importance. Do they, uh, do they assure that everyone has the same level of cultural training, cultural competency training? And are they fully aware that, that um, we all have to uh, be on the same page when it comes to uh, the diversity our clients have? Next is internal service delivery styles. What is our style? Do we simply have one style of, of delivering services? Is it by way of engaging um, in an individual session or is it... Um, have we diversified our delivery styles, right? Um, again, individual in an office versus field base versus telehealth. Um, you know, again, those simply are some diverse experiences that may um, work for some folks, right? Think about someone who has a physical disability that isn't able to come to an office, but may really be in need of services and us being able to do, whether that be telehealth or field-based services, really just, um, amplifies um, our understanding of someone's cultural competent care needs. Uh, next is to meet the client where they are, really asking the client what is what is their preference and how do they see themselves becoming most successful when it comes to this experience of us providing treatment in a collaborative way with the client. And then we have workforce diversity and training. Again, to really get to the point of optimal cultural competent care is really looking at a diverse workforce and training that is not only a course or a refresher that one takes today, but how do we constantly and continuously um, encourage staff to learn and grow and, and, and just evolve in the ever um, expanding um, area of cultural uh, competency and differences that we come across right, from just a simple standpoint of diversity. Just thinking back to, let's say, 5, 10, 15 years ago on how the word diversity may have been uh, viewed very differently than it is today. And so just thinking about how that could be happening 5, 10 years from, from where we stand today. The next is community engagement and how, how important is it for a provider to really engage the community that they are affiliated with where they provide treatment and where their building is located to really reach that that optimal level of culturally competent care right understanding the community by way of what is um, favorable to a particular in, uh, community what is acceptable what is um, preferable in many ways and, and so just being able to um, you know, engage and, and, and speak to community individuals and all that leads us to data collection, right? Being able to have data that we can collect and gather that will allow for us to have a much better start to constantly share the, um, the, uh, the specific elements of culture that will make our clients better and make our um, treatment program successful and us as individuals 
um, much more successful by way of a culturally competent care system that we now work with. And that leads me to a term that is oftentimes um, utilized in a, in a reverse way, but it is very much affiliated with cultural competency, and that is cultural humility. And so I want to take a second to just create a clear definition of cultural humility so that we all know the similarities, but also the differences between both definitions. And again, we'll start with a clear definition of cultural humility. So the term cultural humility was introduced in 1998 as a dynamic and lifelong process focusing on self-reflection and personal critique, acknowledging one's own bias. So I invite you to think about cultural humility as an individual experience, um, as an individual experience of not just a definition, but the process that you will go through uh, in a ongoing experience by way of understanding yourself, um, how you see and think of this experience of culture, but also how do you utilize your own self-reflection and acknowledge your own experiences by way of biases and maybe your own understanding. All of this creating a level of humility within yourself to better understand your client and know that um, we are different in some ways with our clients, but in many ways, very similar. So that takes us to the definition of cultural humility, which takes us to this really nice slide here that is the journey of cultural competency. And so if you look at the of, of the journey, you'll see that we start with cultural awareness, right? And from there, it leads us to cultural sensitivity because the more we are aware that cultures exist, that differences exist, the more we would move to then become sensitive to the, the needs of our clients, but also the differences that the clients may have. And then thirdly, understanding that cultural competence is the area in which we will then gain tools by way of formal training or even informal training that will help us continue to become aware and more sensitive to the cultures that are different than our own. And all of these three areas combined on an ongoing basis allow for us to be that cultural, um, under uh, that, that individual that uh, understands cultural humility and sees that it's an evolution that has to continue to evolve. So hopefully this slide here kind of brings new light or maybe adds on to your current definition of cultural, not only competency, but also cultural awareness and leads you to have a, a slightly different um, understanding of cultural humility, which is, again, the process of one thinking of the definition of culture, but also also reflecting on our own experience by way of our um, of our own biases. So again, really wonderful slide here. Um, a good practical way to 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 uh, to maybe segment this slide out in a way as an individual practitioner or from a team perspective is um, really trying to um, make a list of each of, of these areas and how your um, growth uh, falls under um, each category and how 
maybe the trainings and support that your own agency or providing experience has um, allotted for each of these areas so that there'd be a full blend of, of cultural competency. I, I want to uh, thank you all for joining us in this brief refresher journey of cultural competency. Um, thank you for being able to, um, to um, hopefully add on to your existing tools of knowledge for cult cultural competency. And please join us for additional trainings with um, UCLA's Public Mental Health Partnership. Visit our website and know that um, uh, we have several trainings that are not only um, uh, on our calendar that can be live, but also that can be accessed by way of pre-recorded training. Um, thank you all and have a great um, day.